Hi, I'm Sumit Bose. Welcome to the Net Hero podcast. Remember, we're online, we're video and audio. You can download us, you can watch us on the Energy Live News YouTube channel, and of course, subscribe to the podcast with whatever podcast service you listen to. We want you to be involved in the podcast every week, so make sure that you get in touch. If you've got something you think should be talked about, you're doing something in net zero or ESG or sustainability, or you just think you've got a tale that others would be inspired by, then drop me a line, nethero at futurenetzero.com, and make sure that you listen in regularly. Without you as the audience and also our guests, the podcast is nothing. Now, on to this week's episode. Now, this week's podcast, well, what can I say? It's a very challenging topic. It's one that I've struggled with all my life. It's one that even Homer Simpson would have an opinion on. It's beer. We drink billions and billions of litres of it. We'll find out a bit later in this podcast how much we drink. But did you know that beer has a big issue? It's an issue that most of us probably don't even think about when we're sipping a cold one, and that's the sustainability around beer. And that's the topic we're going to discuss today on the Net Hero podcast. And I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by a brewing expert and a scientist and an all-round good guy, uh, Roland Paul Dobrik. I hope I got that right, Roland. Was it Paul Dobrik? Or Paul Dobrik? It's Paul Dobrik. I'll call you Roland. Is that all right? <laughs> Roland is very good. Thank you. Roland, now you're German. Yes, I am. From Berlin, Germany, actually. Very good beer. And we're recording this not far from October. But let's just talk about beer itself. What is beer as such? Because everyone probably kind of thinks they know what it is and there are so many different bits to it. And what are the big sort of issues around beers, sort of sustainability, that probably no one would have thought of 10, 15 years ago. So if we can just go through those two types of things, because there's so many different types, and there are ales, there are lagers, but what do you in this sort of industry define as a beer? That actually is a very good question to start this with, because the definitions vary, because the making of beer varies all over the world. But something that probably most of the people can agree on is that it is a water-based drink. Most of the beverage is water and it contains extract that is dissolved from cereals in almost all of the cases. Those extracts need to be converted so that they become fermentable. And once the extract is fermented by brewing yeast, the beer typically contains alcohol and CO2. That, I would say, is the basis of uh, beer. Most of the beer today contains hops as a spice. Yeah. And there you are. That's basically beer deriving from water, cereals, fermented and contains a little bit of hops. And then you've got beer and then people think of beer, you know, in England, here we are, we have beer, which a lot of people call warm beer. We have ales that come from pumps and they don't have as much gas. And then we have our lagers, which have got much more carbonated, you know, CO2 in them. So again, in terms of that, is there a difference in the sort of way a beer or an ale is made compared to a lager? And is there an industry sort of definition? Is just is it just the amount of CO2, for example? The differences are, of course, pretty distinct in some cases. The recipes vary a lot. But when you stick with the example of what makes a lager and an ale different, lagering, the word itself, comes from a maturation step. 
The lager is uh, an old German word for storage. Right. And that maturation step basically is something that you don't do in an ale beer. And that's why ale beers are typically produced at warmer temperatures. That's why they have also been always produced all over the year. And those warm temperatures in former times made it very difficult to keep the CO2 that is uh, developed during fermentation in the beer. And that means the beer typically wasn't as rich in CO2 as a beer that was matured at cold temperature. The beer being matured in cold temperature and in a closed vessel kept the CO2 in the beer. And that's, if you want to stick with the example of the CO2, that's where some of the difference comes from. So it's actually the process. It's not that you're adding, you know, if you left an ale in a cold place, that's what you're saying. It would probably become a lager if you gave it long enough. Is that what you're saying? No, no, no. Ah. <laughs> That's one of the crucial things around it, but there's more to that than uh, only the maturing step itself. It's the type of yeast that you're doing, uh, that, that you're using. Gotcha. It's, it's the brew house process and so on. You work for a company called the Powell Corporation, right? Correct. Just tell us a little bit about what they do in this world, because you're not just in the kind of brewing sort of space, are you, as an, as an organization? That's correct. The Powell Corporation is a company that focuses on filtration and separation, and it filters and purifies fluids. And fluids in the world of science are liquids and gases. And of course, coming to the beer, you need gases and liquids to produce beer. And also the beer itself is filtered in by far most of the cases. It is very difficult to find exact numbers, but our estimations are that way above 90% of the global beer production is filtered beer because the filtration improves the stability and with that, the retail quality of the product. And it's also very appealing to have a bright beer. And uh, that's why once the beer filtration was invented, it made its uh, strain of victory through the beer production. And as I'm saying, by far, most of the beers in the world are filtered today. That's really a thing because, you know, you buy a, a beer that's, you know, homebrew. It's always cloudy. You go to sort of those specialist places. And I've been to some in Germany and certainly loads in England. And it is all kind of like, you know, there's the gunk in it. Sometimes you drink and there's a bit of gunk left over. This has all become part of what industry has done to clean up the product, isn't it, over the years? I mean, brewing been around what god what is it five thousand years something like that I, can't, I don't know you probably know better than me but yeah from what i understand it's been one of the things we first did as a form of agriculture that's correct it's around of for thousands of years that's a fact and then there's a lot of speculation around is it one of the factors that made people settle because they needed the agriculture for it? Are you telling me, Roland, that the pubs and bars were the reason we created society? I like that theory. There's actually there's, there's scientists who say that is so. Yeah, That's you are right. Brilliant. And so when it comes to kind of that whole process of the beer, the lager, whatever, if we look at what we're talking about today on the podcast, sustainability, I suppose most of us, and most of what you see is all about the packaging. You know, is it in a recycled bottle? Are we using recycled plastics? The glass? Is there a packaging? Can you take the listeners through what are the other areas around the sustainability of a beer? Because I would think most people I ask them now, what makes a beer sustainable? They'd probably say the packaging. 
You are right. That is a very big factor, as it is for many other industries as well. When Whenever a product needs to be sold and shipped, then packaging is increasingly important. But when it comes to beer, there is something very specific about it also when it comes to the filtration, because filtration of not only beer, but also wine in the past was dominated by using a substance that is called diatomaceous earth. DE, often abbreviated, or in many other languages of the world, Kieselgur, that's the exact same thing, only two different words. And while this technology produces very good beers, those filtered beers that we grew up with, basically, it is not a very sustainable way of doing the filtration of beverage, because DE is something that is dismantled from the ground. It is dismantled in mines, and to be able to be used in foodstuffs, of course, it needs to be treated. And that treatment involves sifting, that means grading it, but also heat treatment. And that heat treatment, since we're talking about a fossil material, needs to be at very high temperatures, 900 degrees C in that range. And that, of course, makes a lot of energy being used, and it produces quite some CO2 footprint. On top of that, it is the case that, specifically for brewers, the diatomaceous earth needs to be of high quality. So not every mine in the world is able to be used as a source for brewers. So DE is being brought from certain places in the world where there aren't too many of, to every brewery in the world that wants to use DE. So that's a lot of logistical chain. It has that heat treatment as a back package and CO2 footprint with it. And then it happens that you cannot really reuse the DE, but it is a disposable. So you use it once and then it turns into waste. And uh, I can tell you that brewers use tons of DE every year for the production. What is it? Is it something that is from a byproduct from, I don't know, coal mining? Is it something that comes from mining for precious metals? Or is it something completely separate that people mine for this DE just for the brewing industry? Very good point of yours. Yes, I can clarify that. It is something that is mined for the purpose of of using the DE. Brewers and winemakers are not, by far, not the only ones using DE, right. but it is used in many other industries. It's in toothpaste, it's in dynamite. It is, ah. it is basically fossil algae where there were seas long, long ago. Algae wow. would have settled. They would have yeah. formed a deposit that turned fossil over time. And since it is of that structure, fossil algae, has a very bizarre shape and structure, giving it a very big internal surface, which makes it very applicable to filtration. That's why it was used so very long. But again, the way of using it is not a very sustainable one. I mean, this is fascinating. I had no idea. I thought filtration was just done with a membrane or something. I mean, I don't even know how we got to this because uh, we won't go into that. It'll take us forever. It's a great subject. But yeah. but let's take where we are. That part, I think, is brilliant, what you've explained that, you know, to filter, you need this material and there's an energy cost. What about the water? That's the other thing that, you know, for a, for a pint or let's, let's, let's be metric, for a, a litre of beer, of half a litre of beer, how much water would you need on average? That's the other, the second biggest thing around the sustainability of brewing beer. You're right. Uh, the, the figures of how much beer you produce using how much water is one very important KPI for each and every brewery out there. When I started working in, in brewing like uh, 30 years ago, it was normal to use around eight liters of water for every liter of beer. Wow. Eight to one ratio. That was 30 years ago. What is it now? There is a lot of improvement being done, and the best in class are around two to one these days. Okay, okay. 
So significant improvement. And this significant improvement is, of course, being achieved by utilizing modern ways of production. And here also filtration offers a chance because utilizing this DE powder for filtration will always imbibe a lot of beer in the material for filtration. And of course, you don't want to lose that much beer, so you have to rinse it so that this technology also relatively or has a relatively high footprint of water consumption. And stepping away from that and trying to replace the DE filtration technology and beer filtration with something more modern does not only reduce the CO2 footprint of the filtration very much mm. by not utilizing uh, diatomaceous earth, but also the water consumption. So, you, yeah, this is very interesting because you've, you've, you've hit something here, which I think most people would be looking at because there's, and, and sorry for the interruption, but I think it's quite a valid point. There's a feeling that, you know, industry hasn't really looked at any of this stuff around net zero until the last few years. But what you've just said there is 30 years ago, you were kind of eight to one. Now you're two to one. Clearly, brewers, and I know that, I don't know if you directly work for a brewer or, or did in the past, but they are doing things, aren't they? These companies have been aware of the kind of environmental cost of their product. Yes, increasingly so these days, yeah. There has been improvement over the last, say, two to three decades, ongoing improvement, right. but just increasingly speeding up over the last few years. People are being much more aware about the sustainability of their products. Also, to some extent, legislation, of course, yes, of course, varying locally, but legislation also pushes that. But I'm thinking specifically with the new generation of customers, people just recognize that they need to be sustainable with their products and that, that this can be actually also something they can advertise their brands with, pointing out that they are more sustainable maybe than others or highlighting the things that they are doing to improve the sustainability of their product. All right, here we go. Let's get to the science bit. So what have you been doing at, at the Powell Corporation to try and improve the sustainability of beer particularly i think the filtration part is the bit that you've been doing so could you explain to us particularly to me in simple terms have you got rid of the de what what are you doing to try and reduce the carbon footprint of my pint of your pint yeah um, <laughs> okay of my of my my stein <laughs> no 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 that's that's okay i love drinking pints myself so yeah, I'm very glad that you asked me that because this is something that I'm focusing on at the moment very much, of course. I'm, I'm the beer market manager for the company, Paul, and beer filtration is one of the biggest things that we are doing. And the technology that is most successful to replace the DE filtration technology is called cross-flow membrane filtration. You just said it yourself. You simply assumed membranes would be used for the filtration. Yeah, yeah. But it's not that simple because if you did so... In conventional ways, the membranes would block very quickly and you would have very short filtration. Then you would have to start over again, clean a lot, and that, of course, would make it also inefficient. And the solution of using cross-flow filtration is one where the membranes, by a tangential flow, as we call it, that means the beer basically flowing parallel to the membranes and only some part of the beer traveling through the membrane to be filtered by a pressure difference, that cross-flow keeps the membranes free for very long so that you can have long and effective filter runs. And then the sustainability bit kicks in when those membranes clearly are reusable. You can wash those membranes and then you can reuse them rather than throwing away the DE in the conventional way after each and every batch of filtration that you are doing. What are you making the membranes from? That's a polymer. 
And uh, that polymer is, of course, made to be food contact compliant in about every part of the world. You'll have legislation that pays very much attention to that. And it is a polymer that, of course, uh, heeds all these re uh, requirements and is uh, fully uh, usable in, in food production. And it's also one that, of course, is made in a way that it lasts as long as possible so that from that perspective, you're also reducing the waste drastically and comparing to the waste uh, accumulation of a DE filtration, the waste that you accumulate with a membrane filtration is significantly below. It doesn't really even make sense to calculate percentages because it's that much lower, the, the waste accumulation. That right. Wow. So, and it might be tricky, but in my future world of my, you know, cleaner beer, will I ever get a net zero pint? <laughs> There are already net zero. No. Numbers. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know how that works. And there, there is, of course, compensation and of stuff. Course. Of course. And with that, there are already a few beers in the world that are uh, net zero. But you know that all countries in the world have made their commitments to becoming less carbon intensive and industries are being pushed towards that and big brewers specifically the big ones of course because they can do a lot of optimization they can finance research and development and so on these big brewers also made commitments to become carbon neutral and i'm not in the position to quote targets of, of brewers here no no I, I get that it's in relatively short distance that the large brewers are really aiming to become as neutral as possible to say the least let's just before we end let's talk about some of the figures now before we started recording you gave me a figure for how much beer is drunk can you remind the me and the audience tell us how much beer on average you know the rough yard stick that the industry takes is, is drunk every every day on planet earth <laughs> yeah. yeah it's it's a lot brewers calculate their outputs typically in hectoliters the famous hectoliter and that's a hundred liters and the global beer consumption year on year is typically two billion hectoliters wow. and that's that is very evenly split up all over the globe you have to say really so it's not all just in in finland and in germany no. and poland <laughs> And Britain. No, 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 no. If you look at the global split, it's actually pretty evenly distributed wow. all over. We all love beer. Yes. That brings us together. So it's it's massive. I mean, look, all joking aside, that's a huge amount, right? And obviously, we think of decarbonization, getting back to a bit more serious. People think about, let's decarbonize transport and heating and homes. But actually, the food industry and the drinks industry... That's not insignificant, is it? Yes, that's one significant contribution that you can make. And uh, that's something that's driving the industry very much these days. They all pick up the stones and look underneath them to see where there is potential for them to improve. And I can say so much. Again, the big ones, they are already very good. When I said that the best in class use two liters of water these days on one liter of beer, that's, of course, some of the big ones. For smaller ones, it's more difficult to do that. Yeah, of course. And that's why also we see a lot of the switch away from DE, as we've mentioned that before, happening at larger brewers more quickly than at smaller brewers, because that is potential that you can also use, very much like other methods to apply modern ways of production. Is this going to be, I mean, everything you've seemed to have discussed, and, and I do understand it seems to be that the big giant brewery companies, we all know their names, are pushing this stuff. Will there be a weird irony that actually the pint of beer you get from a very commercial brewer might 
in, the, in or even is already have a lower carbon footprint than something you get from a small boutique kind of you know organic brewer just because the technology is as you say much more scalable if you've got more money and you're you're bigger is that is that the weird irony we're in where we might be thinking we're drinking a sort of organic pint but it might have a bigger footprint than something that's commercially pumped out I'm I'm totally with you that it is a bit ironic of course but if you think of what you're doing at home when you wash your dishes at home and have the water tap running that's a lot of water that you're yeah. using to wash your dishes yeah. if you would use an optimized dishwashing machine that could recircle the water would use much less of it nowadays they would even have clever and smart temperature programs and that's the same way in, in the production of beer again when we talk about my topic it is something where of course investment into new modern technology brings back an roi relatively quickly the bigger you are and the more so you can harvest on sustainability improvement when you can do such improvement in modern production equipment that's of course more difficult the smaller you are that's a bit ironic i agree but if you look at the global beer market at these infamous two billion hectoliters then of course the largest part of that is produced by the big brewers of course yeah. So if you're looking at what's globally being done in the beer production, well, if the biggest part of the beer that is produced is becoming better and better, then beer overall is becoming better and better. That is, of course, something good for us as beer drinkers, isn't it? Killer question. Is my sustainable pint going to taste as good? Yes. <laughs> so this new, the stuff you're working on, no change to the actual taste that we get in the beer or any of that? No, no, no. I mean, we could go into detail at that moment in time, but what we're typically saying, it's as good or better as the conventional technology. One of the last things I want to touch on is the rise of non-alcoholic beers. I've even had some myself, and they used to be awful. I mean, when I was a teenager, you'd never touch them. But now they're much more palatable. And all of this stuff shows you know, a change in mindset, you know, offering different things, drinks that are non-alcoholic, drinks that are kind of lower footprint, do you think, you know, to end with, we're seeing a real shift of how the whole kind of brewing industry is moving? Yes, agree. That is another big trend in the world. And that's, of course, also a challenge for everybody who participates in that industry to be ready for that change. And I'm with you. Modern alcohol-free beers are very good. Typically, when, when I buy my beverages for at home, I buy one crate of normal beer and a crate of alcohol-free as a thirst quencher over the day. So I'm, I'm totally with you. Yeah, that's exactly it. Listen, it's been a fascinating chat. What are your hopes 30 years into the brewing industry? Let's hope you're brewing in 30 years' time still, okay? Do you think we will see a real shift over the next sort of 10, 15 years in what we're drinking, the footprint of it, and that, you know, we will be all able to say that actually we can still enjoy things without harming the environment as much as we've been doing? Absolutely. I think every industry these days has that challenge and all are taking the challenge on because there is only so much reserve for us yeah. to live from, right? And everybody has understood that we need to save on what we have and what we use. And that's something that's driving every industry these days very much. And specifically also, I can say that for the brewing industry where modern technology can help make significant change and improvement. Well, I can only end this interview by saying thank you so much, Robert. And, uh, is it Proust? What do you say? Yeah, it's uh, Proust. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us on the Net Hero podcast. Really enjoyed the chat. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was fun. You've been listening to the Net Hero podcast with Summit Bose from Future Net Zero. Visit our platform for all things Net Zero. 
And if you or your business is doing great things on the path to net zero and want to be featured on the podcast, email nethero at futurenetzero.com. Follow us on social media. futurenetzero.com. Better business, better planet.